Welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast that flips the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair a book with a song or an album that sparks the same emotional connection. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series with a highly esteemed journalist and Lambda Award-winning author, Chike Frankie Adosian. A link to the songs featured in this episode is available in the show notes. Get in touch by emailing booksandrhymes at gmail.com. Follow Books and Rhymes on Instagram and Twitter. Share your thoughts on this episode using the hashtag booksandrhymes. Subscribe to the mailing list at booksandrhymes.com. How you doing? Like Wendy, how you doing? How you doing? <laughs> oh, Chike Frankie Adosian. Adosian, yes. Okay. You can just call me anything you like, but... As long as you mention my full name, so <laughs> people know who I am. But you can call me Chike, you can call me Frankie, you can call me Adosian. Okay. But at some point, you have to put the three together so people know which one it is. Okay. Because, you know, I'm from a big family. This is true. And I'm named after two of my uncles. So there's already a very, very accomplished Chike Adosian, who is a professor of medicine, who I'm named after. And he is the current Asagba of Asaba. He's a traditional ruler. And I'm also named after my Uncle Francis, who's a very, very accomplished doctor, Dr. Francis Adosian, in his own right. So I'm named after him. So if you say, you know, Frankie Adosian or Francis Adosian, and you Google that, you might come up with my uncle's great achievements in medicine. And if you just put Chike Adosian, you might come up with my other uncle's <laughs> great achievements. But when you put Chike Frankie Adosian, voila, humble me shows up. A little, a little less accomplished, but I'm trying to leave my own f- mark on the you're world. You're being <laughs> modest. You're being modest, Mr. The mm-hmm. Lambda Award winning. Oh, yes, there's that. Right. Yes, um, yes, that was very nice. Yes, you know, so. That was big. I can imagine. Yeah, it was a shock, actually. You know, we were sitting there with our mouths open. Wow. Because, you know, when, you're, when your book is, um, when people are interested in your work, and they've shortlisted your book for things. You're kind of happy because at the end of the day, it's it's an African work in a global space. Mm. And just being longlisted or shortlisted is already like plenty that in all the things that are out there, people found yours and thought yours was worthy. But being in the auditorium and being called was a bit of a shock because there was no preparation for me. I didn't even know what to say because I was so stunned because I'd been shortlisted and longlisted and I hadn't won anything and I was just happy to be in the room. Mm, and also you know. the book getting is the, yes, much because the necessary are, spotlight it deserves. When you get shortlisted, that means other people can find your book. This is true. Whether it's a bookstore carrying it or people who are interested in that particular um, award sh- show or whoever is putting that and saying these are my favorite or these are my best blah 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 people that maybe you couldn't reach can find your book so it's always a good thing to be recognized but winning is a whole other thing <laughs> did you submit the book how was the book submitted for the lambda award i believe the publisher did so yeah i think that often what happens is if, if you have a new book out your publisher will send galleys or the completed work to different people for consideration for press, you know. So you hope that you get reviews. Um, nothing is a guarantee, but it's almost like you just try. So the publisher um, is Team Angelica in the UK and in the US, and they were the first ones to put the book out. So they submitted the book to reviewers across the country and across the in the United States and in the UK. I got a couple of reviews which were really helpful and wonderful, but it's really difficult to get um, uh, to get your book reviewed by a major publication. I was very lucky that uh, there was a there is a wonderful female uh, Nigerian writer named Diana Evans and she has yes. this book called Ordinary People. Yes. I don't know how she got my book, but she reviewed it for the FT. And I was very, very grateful because it's it's tough to get into big broadsheets like that. Um, I've sub- subsequently met her, and she was just as amazing in person as I thought she would be, um, just from reading her work. But one of the things that was very helpful for me was that uh, she really understood the book, and she got it in a way other reviewers didn't. In what way? <sighs> There are things that people have missed in the book often and they mainly focus on the fact that it's about um, gay people Mm -hmm. versus the full arc of being um, 
all the other things that I talk about, uh, a lot of it about being an immigrant. I think Diana got that instantly. Being a person who is trying to um, forge your way in the uh, corporate world when you are out of your country. And I think Diana picked up on my struggles and my success as a journalist and how that played into how I saw the world, which many other reviewers didn't. I think only one other person who reviewed it picked up on that, and that was the Somali writer, Diria Usman. It's interesting that these are two African people who have left the continent and have come to the West and have had their own careers that were able to see some of these stories that most people miss when they read the book and pick that up. So I don't know. I think there's something about recognizing a little bit of yourself or your struggle in somebody else's work. So those two reviewers, I think, were... It was exciting for me to see that they really understood the stories I was trying to tell in there. So that was very helpful. But going back to the award show, so the publishers, they send out galleys, they send out complete work, and it's just... You just hope that somebody will read it and give you a little bit of ink because it's really tough to sell a book. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, booksellers don't go out advertising your book for you or they don't ask people to review your book for you maybe some do i don't know it's not been my experience so it's been mainly the publishers saying well let's try and see if we get any luck let's just send it out and see if somebody will pick it up and read it and and understand what you're trying to do and then give you some ink so in 2018 when it was sort of shortlisted for all these things i felt like okay some people are seeing what, what I'm trying to tell. And that means for me is that when they say, this is our shortlist for this year, that that can open up a whole new audience for me of people who may not have heard of me before. So there's this big um, prize called the Publishing Triangle in New York. And they're fairly big, and it's a big money prize. And I didn't win, but I was very, very happy to be shortlisted because I know as a result of being shortlisted, they invited me to do a whole bunch of readings and put me in front of audiences that would never have seen me before, you know? And that's just because the judges liked the book. It didn't win, you know? <laughs> but I felt like a winner because, yes, because any time they were doing a reading that year, they would invite me and say, are you free? Do you want to do a reading here? And in fact, um, they did a huge thing um, in Harlem with minority writers this past June. And unfortunately, I was working in Ghana but they still thought about me and said, you would be good for this. And I was like, I'm on the continent. So, and this is not um, an organization that I have this deep relationship with. I was just one of their shortlisted writers and they've given me so much. So I, I'm really big on, if you have work out, sending it out because you just don't know who will pick it up, who will include you on a long list or short list and the doors that that might open for you. So I'm thankful to all of my publishers. I have three now. And whenever they want to send something out, I'm like, please send it. <laughs> 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 because I don't know. I don't know who will. Um, and I think it's the fact that somebody has read your book yeah. and thinks it's worthy to include on the list yes. of any kind. Yes. That means you've already won. You don't always have to get the big prize. Mm. It's nice to get a big prize, you know, because then you're forever a X, Y, and Z winner. Mm -hmm. But uh, being shortlisted is, has its own reward, too, mm. I found. Okay. So... Officially, <laughs> welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast. Oh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> we full ground. <laughs> as in, welcome to the podcast. Um, mm. As you know, Books and Rhymes, the podcast, I invite guests to pair books with a song or an album that sparks an emotional connection. Yes. So today we are deep diving into lives of great men. Your wonderful book. Thank you. Um, it's Thank you. I, it's such a wonderful and enjoyable read. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> so when I received Lives of Great Men... Um, to read um, is published by Team Angelica, Angelica. Well, in the US and the UK in the US and the UK yeah, in I'm Nigeria and published by Wida Books yes. which is um, actually not just Nigeria it's for English speaking so we're in Ghana now and we'll be in East Africa but in Southern Africa I'm published by uh, Jakana Jakana Media which has South Africa and the region around it so, so I'm very 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 happy to have uh, distribution in Africa which was very important for me for this book because I really wrote this for Africans. Mm. So everything else is sort of like extra. And the biggest thing for a writer, I think, is being able to have your book reach the audience that you really want. Yes. And I wanted Africans to own this book. So having read the books, 
take hold of it in English-speaking West Africa, and then Jakarta Books take a hold of it in Southern Africa mm. has been really helpful for me because I can travel around the continent and people have access mm. to this book. So mm. that is, is, is very, it's great for me. And then Team Angelica has done a wonderful job yes. getting it out to people all over the UK, Europe, and America where I've been living for the last couple of years. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> when I got Lives of Great Men um, to read... I got it in conjunction with another book also published by Tim Angelica in the same year, Sister, an anthology. Yes, um, Sister. Oh, my God. Sister. Oh, my God. So I read that and then I I, I read Lives of Great Men and I had a perception going into Mm. Lives of Great Men, which is what you touched on, Mm. um, in the way that, you know, one would automatically summarize it as a book about sexuality yes <laughs> and coming to terms yes. with one's self you know and and yeah mm-hmm. and self-definition as opposed to the definition that people place on you yes but in reading <laughs> lives of great men i fell in love with your writing oh thank you i shouldn't have a conversation you know i was trying to talk to my friends, my peers, and whoever. And I think one of the things that is, that people have told me is different about me and the book is that in life, I, I can be very exuberant. You know, I'm a person who is, um, I can be quite energetic, you know, and I can talk a mile a minute, and I'm a, I can be a, a hugger, and I can be tactile, and I can be very just... Very present. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, I can have energy, yeah. you know? But with Lives of Great Men, um, a few of my friends have told me that when they read it, yes, it was me, but it was quiet and intimate. It's like I was just having just a conversation with one person and not arguing, just slowly taking them through my life and the points I was trying to make. And I think for me, in writing Lives, I wanted it to be accessible to everyone. So I was thinking about if I was having a conversation with one person, what would I be saying to them? How would that sound to them? And I think the writing style for this Lives of Great Men book is about trying to have a conversation that is intimate, mm. <laughs> you know. And it feels very intense. Because I can be very argumentative. <laughs> but I can I, argue points with people. You're a journalist, isn't yeah. that what you're supposed to be doing? <laughs> yeah, so I can argue and I can stand my ground. But I think in doing this book, I felt more like I needed to be not necessarily gentle, but intimate. Mm. How was that for you, um, letting go of your natural inclination to Mm. argue? I think that is helpful for me in the fact that outside of being a journalist, when I stopped being um, an everyday full-time journalist, I started to teach journalism. Mm. And if you're teaching at the university level, especially something that is not, like journalism is not purely academic. It's really a skill, Mm -hmm. you know? It's a skill and you're teaching people to harness their you know, their inner critical thinking stuff. So that requires a little bit of patience. And so I knew that in writing Lives of Great Men, it had to be a patient conversation where I'm making an argument, I'm stacking the deck, I'm showing you the points I'm trying to make, but I'm also opening myself up so that it's an enjoyable read. Mm-hmm. So I think the fact that I I had been at the time full-time teaching for a few years was helpful in how I wanted to have the conversation to go versus me yelling at you (laughs) 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 which i can easily do in writing you know Um, but i it it was a conscious effort not to talk down at people Mm. to have a good conversation with them 
it sounds like listening to you sounds like there was a prompt. What prompted you to start writing Lives of Great Men? Several things, and it was born out of anger, honestly, um, which is interesting that the book for me, like Lives of Great Men for me is not an angry book, mm. <laughs> but the 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 the, uh, the origins were born out of anger and frustration. And there are several things. So the first thing was, I think it was 2011. I was working in Accra, Ghana. Actually, 2010. And it was nice for me to, as a as a, a queer person who was a foreigner, figure out that in Ghana, nobody seemed to care if you were gay or lesbian. Mm -hmm. You know, just there were safe spaces. There were bars. There were clubs. There were places you could go on certain nights. This was my experience in Ghana in 2008, 2009, and 2010. You know, 2008, 2009, 2010. I'd been going there consistently for those oh three wow. years. In 2011, everything was different. Everything, all the safe spaces were gone. In what way? Um, well, every day in the news, there was um, a charged headline that said, you know, homosexuals are doing this, or homos are doing that. And every day it was a topic on the radio, but not in an objective sense. It was very derogatory and in many senses divisive. It was almost as if um, somebody had said, uh, the way one of my friends explained it to me is that if you're a poor person, right, and somebody tells you that this person is going to come and take away the last bit of bread that you have, you will fight to keep your last bit of bread. And that year was also an election year, and they had just discovered oil in Ghana, so there was a lot at stake. And suddenly, gay people were not just in the news, but they were public enemy number one. And it did not make sense to me that the year before when I was there, this wasn't happening, that I could go to all these places, people could meet at places, you would see women together and men together in not exactly public places, but it wasn't exactly hidden. You know, so there's a club everybody would go to, and it's like, oh, on Wednesday night, if you're coming in, they would whisper to you, um, it's mainly gay people this night, you still want to go. Do they use the term gay people, or is it like a different phrase? They would say used? homo. Oh. Yeah. And does that have the same connotation as it does in the West? Yes, but I think for most of those people, they didn't mean it derisively at the time. But when it became a newspaper thing, it now became a thing of disgust. You know, um, and this was in 2011. So the first thing I did, because I was so perplexed by it, was that I just wrote a, a newspaper story, um, a regular news feature magazine story for an organization called Color Lines. And it was published in America. And that was just, for me, it was perplexing because I had been in Ghana for five weeks and I had this stack of newspapers because every day I buy the newspapers. And I was looking to find a day that I'd been there, that homo wasn't on the front page, and it was difficult. Mm. <laughs> and it was just physical evidence. Look at the papers, throw them on the floor every day. Let's see this whole summer. And I was like, this is madness. So I went to the, the largest newspaper in the country, in Ghana. It's mm. called the Daily Graphic. Yes. It's the graphic. Um, they have many papers. But the Daily Graphic is one, there's the Sunday Graphic, there's the Graphic Sports. So there's a chain, but they are the largest ones. And I interviewed the editors, and they were like, oh, no, 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 we're not homophobic. It's just, this is what's in the news now, and, you know, we need to sell newspapers. And then I said to them, well, every day that I've seen, it's been kind of negative. And they're mm. like, no, we, we have some positive front pages. And I said, well, show me. And then they brought one in which there was a pastor or a archbishop or somebody saying that gay people should be treated humanely. Mm -hmm. And they put that on their front pages. Mm -hmm. This pastor supports homos. But obviously, it's, there's an agenda behind <coughs> the... Yes, but it was also on the Saturday paper, the least read paper. <laughs> 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 the least circulation paper. <laughs> but I was like, okay, to your credit, you did put it on the front page and, you know... And then I, I, I talked to some other people in the course of doing that story. Um, a couple of journalists, one of them, his name is Ato Kwaminadadzi, and he was a radio journalist, and he was one of the few people that took a stand on his radio show against the demonizing of gay people, mm. and people just attacked him mercilessly mm. online, and you know they said, oh, the reason that you're saying all this is because you got a divorce, and that, that, that. it was just messy. Mm. And he was just like, you know, 
uh, in talking to him in his studio, he was just like, you know, human rights is human rights. You can't have human rights for some and not for the others. That, you know, he's not exactly pushing an agenda here. He's just, as a journalist, he has to speak the truth. And the attack on gay people is wrong. Whether he loves gay people, he hates gay people, is immaterial. It was just the wrong thing to do. So I did that story anyway and published that. And I was left with this unsatisfying feeling that I needed to do more because I hadn't um, told a complete story. And so what I started to do was I started to just talk to people that I knew personally friends of mine who had made different choices, choices to get married, choices to try and live abroad, choices to not get married, just queer people, men and women, Africans of a certain generation, you know, so quite contemporary, and the choices they were making to live well. And as I was just collecting these stories and doing this, I didn't know if it would become a book. I didn't know if it would become a documentary. I started by filming them. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know what I was going to do were with it. Were these interviews you were filming yes. th- uh, with their consent? That the yes, with their consent, and I was shooting them. I mean, a lot of them, um, when I look back at the footage now, a lot of them wanted their features, these guys, but they were willing to tell me their story on the record. Some of these stories I knew already. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do something, whether it's a book or documentary or just another story, you needed to get it on the record. So I would ask them questions about their lives that I knew already, and they were very frank and forthcoming with me. At the time, because I had done this newspaper article, I didn't know what I was going to do with this material. I was just like, well, let me just see what I can get in my spare time. And then it would have been January 2014. I was in Lagos. And the then president, good luck, Jonathan, signed the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act in Nigeria. And that was the one that prohibited marriage with a sentence for 14 years uh, among gay people. But it went a little bit further. And um, there were provisions in there that restricted assembly. Like, you know, if you couldn't form a club, you couldn't do X, Y, and Z. People had to turn people in. And yes, it was a political gambit for a president who was flailing in the polls and who eventually lost. But the repercussions of that really made me angry because what it did was instantly criminalize the whole bunch of men and women who had no recourse if people attacked them for being gay. So there was a lot of bashing, a lot of humiliation. There are newspapers that I, articles that I have about people being just lined up you know, and photographed and being accused of being gay and put in the newspapers, people's um, um, health status being put out there in the newspapers, people being shamed for any sort of um, inkling or just a suspicion of being gay. Even in my town in Asaba, which is fairly cosmopolitan, but... You know, sometimes I like to think like we're just too busy with our own stuff to be immune from these things. There was a bunch of women that were arrested and lined up and paraded in the newspapers as part of a a lesbian witch's coven. What the? (laughs) Sounds very Nollywood. I'm telling you, you know. And when you look at that thing, you look at what happened in Abia State, you look at what happened in Lagos State, and I was hearing stories about people in the university being blackmailed and beat up because mm-hmm. they know that you can't go to the police because yeah. they're like, well, comes to witch years. Hunt. Yeah. It was happening so much that I got really, really pissed. And I started saying, I have to do something, primarily because whenever you saw the coverage in the mm-hmm. newspapers, there was no balance that had our voices in there. You may have an activist or two, but there was no effort to talk to gay Africans, whether they were Nigerians, Ghanaians, Rwandans, whatever. There was just no effort to get our voices in there. And there was this um, prevailing notion that, well, you know, 99% of the people agree with it, and that's that. People are very religious and blah, 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 blah. Mm. You know? And I, um, I got really mad, and I said that, as long as I'm a journalist and I'm alive in today's day and age, I have to do something to ensure that people like me are not erased from contemporary African history. Mm. Because for me, when I'm in a classroom, the first thing I do is 
you want us to talk about this topic or you want to write about X, Y, and Z, you want to write about the London Eye, okay, fine. That might be a good news story, but what has been written before? Mm. I always start all my workshops mm. with, let's go back and look at who has done what before. Before we now think of approaching this and saying what's new. So I didn't want a situation where somebody would look back at this error and actually believe the crap that was in the newspapers that mm. one, 99% of the people supported SNPPA and two, that there were not really any gay or lesbian people in Nigeria. Mm. There's just a few of them, you know, some kind of minuscule minority, mm. which is a phrase that had been used in India. Almost like, oh, these people don't really exist and it's just one of two of them who maybe have gone to London and have brought back their <laughs> disgusting ways. And I thought to myself, no, I have to do something. And what I have to do is to put out these voices in the public space. And I remember, I think it was um, maybe Penn World Voices um, 2015, I think. It was the one in New York where it was African-themed, and Chimamanda Adichie was the uh, curator. And I was with um, Binyavanga Wainaina, um, and Lola Shunayin, and um, a whole bunch of other writers, and people were talking projects. And Lola just said to me, you know, this book you're working on, you need to hurry up and finish. Things are happening, and, you know, you need to just finish it. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, I need to finish because all this research I'm doing is just, you know, I'm being thorough, but I need to like put something out there that discusses these lives and these voices because people keep saying that um, we don't exist. And so that sort of anger pushed me to just write and write and write and write and write and say to myself, I'm dealing with a contemporary story. Start with 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and end at 2016, which is where the book ends. And yes, I was very angry a lot of the time while I was doing the research and very reactive to what was going on in the news, but I didn't want the book <laughs> to come off that way. I wanted the book to come off as a reasoned conversation. So Lives of Great Men has <laughs> its origins in anger, but I think you know, it does a good job of having a conversation about these issues. How do you then excavate your anger when writing such a subtopic <coughs> that, mm -hmm. you know, is written around the period where yeah. one is under persecution? Under attack, yeah. yeah. So it was important for me to um, just think about tomorrow. Yeah, and as angry as I was, I really was thinking about what would happen in a few years when people look back at this period. And I didn't want um, I didn't want the total erasure. And so the strategy was put these stories out there, put your life out there, put it all out there for people to have a tapestry of mm. what it means to be a contemporary African today mm. who happens to be not heterosexual, whatever you fall into. And in doing that, I cannot only have flashes of anger. I have to show joy. <laughs> I have to show frustration. I have to show hard work. I have to show all of the things that I've been through and people that I know have been through. So I was looking for a description of a life in full in as much as I could pack into 300 and something pages. <laughs> and um, that was... Uh, that was the goal. And I think we sort of achieved that somewhat. You did it very well. Um, no. Reading Lives of Great Men feels like one is in a deep dive through history. It's yeah. not just the history of... It's a personal history. Yes. It's a personal history that mm. spans across multiple generations, yeah. multiple nations. And there are... I feel like it is... Um, you're taking us on a secret tour. Yes. <laughs> of a world... Of of a life otherwise unknown, yeah. and I yeah. don't want to say world because world has this I, this thing of separation. Yeah. No, it's very familiar, yeah. you know. Um, when I started reading it, and you were talking about the, um, you mentioned the secondary school. Mm -hmm. Your your. I went to boarding school, so yes, and I everything did. happens. <laughs> did one year in boarding school. <laughs> Everything one year happens in boarding, in boarding school. school in Nigeria. I think, um, not just Nigeria, I think Kenya, 
Ghana, everywhere. Even in the UK. Yeah, everywhere. that we have boarding schools. You know. Yeah, and I remember reading the bit about your, your first sexual encounter. Yeah. And the scenario you paint with, you know, because most of the boarding schools in Nigeria, they follow the same, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, the exact same structure. Yeah, yeah, you wake yeah. up, you do your bathing, you go and have your lunch, you yeah. clean or breakfast, you clean the compound, then you start your then lessons. Then you just go class, and you have, then you have CS dad, and, and then you do your reading and session, and then mm-hmm. you do your um, interaction, mm-hmm. and then you go to bed. It's a template it's, it's, they've it's all been following. Yes, <laughs> you know. So there was a bit where you referenced um, where everyone had left the the, the hostel, the room, and yeah. it's you and, and your friend in the room. Mm. And then it was so familiar, but I was and yet unfamiliar. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Because, what? yeah, everyone had gone for night prep, we called it, which is the reading session. And he just <laughs> closed the door and turned off the light and we kept quiet <laughs> until they locked the... Until they locked the the gate and then <laughs> disappeared. It's so interesting because that gentleman is now a pastor, and he's um, we are still friends. It's been how many years later? Oh wow! Yeah. So. And I just saw him last week. Um, he came to Asaba to see me. Oh, <laughs> and he's based in Nigeria. He's in Port Harcourt. Speaking of yeah. your um, yeah. Speaking of um, allyship, because earlier mm. when you mentioned when you were talking about Ghana, mm-hmm. the radio host, yes. who I, the way you describe him, yeah. I imagine him to be heterosexual. He is. Very. Yeah. And he yeah. is using his privilege to um, speak for yeah. those who are oppressed in society. Mm. Now, I'm thinking back to this, your friend that you mentioned, mm-hmm. who has had this... You know, situation, experience. experience. Yes, yeah. you know, you live yeah. and you experiment. Who yeah. experimented and has had this experience as a young person, yeah. and he's also a Christian. Given yeah. the the contentious position of Christianity mm. in Nigeria, specifically with regards to homosexuality, yeah. what is his position, and how do yeah. how does he? So here's the thing yeah. that I I sort of. Um, I have gotten to realize over and over again and I and I have worked to make it a little bit less so. I think that for many of us on the continent and many of us, particularly in Nigeria, but also in Ghana and South Africa and other places, places I know well, there is this thing about this is my person. Mm. Right? I'm not going to go out there and scream, you know, leave him alone or whatever, mm. but I'm going to be respectful and I'm mm-hmm. going to be a good friend to him in private while I say nothing in public or I denounce in public. Mm-hmm. And this particular gentleman has been, well, he's a person that I met when I was 11. <laughs> I'm entrenched in middle age now, you know, <laughs> and we're still friends. But this is a person that I think he and several other of my classmates have had this time to understand that their allyship and their friendship of me is something that they don't want to let go of. Okay. Right? They see in me a friend that they've always had, a brother they've known from high school, and they're not willing to let go of that. What Lives of Great Men has done for them was allowed them to examine their position and say, you just can't say, we love Frankie and that's it. You have to stand up and say, I don't agree with X, Y, and Z. You know, you have to stand up and say, even if I don't understand, but I'm not going to be part of this mob of demonizing. And a bunch of them told me this just last month, that this is what my book has done for them. You know, it, before they could always sort of like put me in a box. Yeah. Okay, this is our gay friend mm. and... We love him and we're not going to do anything to upset him. Mm -hmm. But that was it. It didn't mean that they would be in a position where people are being derogatory towards gays and they would, you know, step up. Now they feel a little bit different. And Mm -hmm. that, I think, is a thing that happens um, more often than we think. Mm. So when there are people who are polling and they are saying that 99% of the populace supports this, we know that that's not true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That that is a false narrative. So what we're doing is trying to get allies to step out of their family box Mm. and just be like, 
this doesn't work for me or whatever you guys want to mm. do you can't say that because i have people mm. whether it's brothers sisters cousins or just yeah. friends that I'm not alone yeah i'm not going to let you just say shit <laughs> millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And now we're going to go into the books and rhymes bit. Okay, good. We've, we've talked about the book. Yes. We have positioned. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. <laughs> 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 I don't know which question is coming first, which is why I'm laughing. No, the this questions is like are the, nice. This is like the hard part of the exam. <laughs> oh, you've talked about the way you want to talk about. <laughs> See, no, the first question is like, you're already familiar with it. You know, I, uh, you know, I asked you to pick a song that yes. captures a narrative yes. landscape yes. Okay, of yes, life. That of one women. I can answer. Yes, yeah. the other ones you don't know, but you know. Well, this one I know. Yes, which song captures a narrative or song or album? That yeah. captures a narrative landscape of lives of great men and why? So for me, it's a song. It's a song that I I was listening to in the 1970s growing up in Lagos. My parents were um, government civil servants, so they were stationed in Lagos. And, and they would always play uh, high life music mm. from the 50s. Many, many high life songs. But they also played a lot of American music from the 60s. So there were some songs from that era that uh, mean the most to me. But the one that I think captures a lot of what I've been trying to say is Bobby Benson's Taxi Driver. Many people know, but at the at the at the heart of it, it talks about pairing up and marriage, you know. And Bobby is singing to whoever it is that you know, get married. <laughs> it doesn't matter who it is, you know. You need to marry someone, you know. And there's the whole thing about being jealous or not being jealous, but it's like oh, I don't care. But go and marry. That's, you know, and I think that in our society today, there is such a premium, whether you're from the north or the south or the east or the west, on getting married, you know, heterosexual marriage and starting a family, whether it's good for you or not. And this is something that has been going on for a long time. So I think that a lot of what queer people react to in contemporary times is this pressure to conform by getting married whether it's going to be a happy marriage or not who cares you need to get married um and so that's one song that i i uh, i think about i play i dance to i love the lyrics and then in 1986 i must have been about 16 years old so i'm dating myself now <laughs> <laughs> you know there was an answer to that by um mandy brown Ujubana, who did a wonderful taxi driver answer to from the women's perspective. And as I always pointed out, even all those years later, 
all those years later, the issue is still the same. Mm-hmm. You have to marry somebody. <laughs> you know, whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, or a cab driver, you have to marry someone. song in particular really encapsulates a lot of what what mm. I feel um, the book talks about. <laughs> and you, know. you mentioned two different um, translation, well, two different iterations of the same songs. Yes. Do they the speak to you in the same way or in different ways? In different ways. Um, Taxi Driver by Bobby Benson um, is, I, I just felt it was wonderful. But it was a song from before my time. It's a song that my parents um, played and my parents loved. Um, all the songs from the 50s and 60s were, they, they give me a moment when I was growing up as a youngster and having an appreciation for music through the emotions that it gave to my parents. But I was around in 1986 when uh, Mandy Brown's Taxi Driver was all the rage. And, you know, I remember living in Lagos and seeing the video. It was shot on Falamore Bridge. I remember being in the University of Port Harcourt and her coming to perform there. She had this album called Breakthrough and there was a university tour. It was very much a young person's um, album at the time. And um, for me, when she was singing The Answer to Taxi Driver, it was very interesting for me. But again, it was all about the same thing. But I was feeling like I was now at an age where I really understood the lyrics. It wasn't so much about the melody. I think when you're under 10 and you like your parents' music, it's more melody. Because yeah. you, the lyrics kind of go over your head. <laughs> 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 you know, but at 16, 17, 18, um, playing Taxi Driver Answer to, uh, I understood what she was talking about. I understood you know, the relationships, feelings, and what it should ultimately lead to. So that was very nice for me. <laughs> Is there anything in particular that the um, Mandy, Mandy's yeah, version it's it's a version of you. defiance, mm. which comes through, you know, mm. it's sort of like, I'm not going to do what you want, you know, uh, I'll do what I need to do for me. Um, but that was also, that was a time when I was having my own, not moment of defiance, but the Americans will call it a light bulb moment. So I, w- I, I, I was raised Catholic, I still am Catholic, and any time I had any kind of, you know, it didn't have to be a full-fledged sexual encounter, but any kind of encounter that was intimate with a man, I would run to confession. It was racked with guilt, and it was racked with feelings of being dirty. You know, now at the time this song was rocking my world, I was also falling in love for the first time. And it's a, a, a chapter that I describe in the book called Forgetting Lamido. And this was the first time that I had a relationship with someone that didn't send me to confession because I understood what love was. And I, I had my moment in realizing that I've done nothing wrong. I'm very happy in this relationship. I'm very happy in this man's arms. I'm very happy in this man's company. I'm very happy eating suya with this man. I'm I'm just, my mood changes when we discuss plans for the future. And this could not be wrong because it was beyond just the sexual encounter. It was this whole relationship. And I stopped going to confession for these matters at that time because I just understood that there's nothing to confess here. (laughs) Now, in some ways, it felt like defiant. Oh, you're doing this bad thing and you don't want to go and confess. But really, it was sort of like, no, I'm not in the wrong. There's nothing to confess here. <laughs> and which song would you say captures your personal journey with regards to your sexuality? Ah, <laughs> my personal <laughs> journey. There are several law. Okay. And they're more contemporary. Um, so, the d- okay, there's um, one song um, by, um, I think she's British, but she may have Caribbean ancestry. I'm not sure. She's black British. Her name is Heather Small. And yes, the song is called Proud. Yeah. I look into the window 
you feel proud and it's something that I still think about whenever I step out of the box that people put me in and I'm like that's not my box and I'm happy to be where I am you know so that song I think was it's been used in many places I think the first time I had it it was used in a British series that translated to an American series called Queerest Folk I also know that it was the song for I think the London Olympic bid so it's a song that people gravitate to because it talks about, you know, being strong in yourself and feeling proud of your efforts. So very often when I feel like I have um I've done something that makes me feel good regardless of what other people think about, you know, and sometimes I'll put it on my Instagram, just I, I've done something nice and I'll just hashtag it, what have you done today to make you feel good or make you feel proud? You know, that's one. There's another um, song and this just sort of captures a moment when I was um, working here in London and just trying to make things happen and going to parties and feeling kind of free and it's by a group called um, Masters at Work and the song is called Work. venture to say perhaps Jamaican just talking about put your back in it and just work hard and do things and that was a, a song that I used to dance to there was a place in um, in Brixton I don't think the club still exists it was in a, a place called the, f the fridge another time it was it was uh, they had a night that was very black it wasn't bootylicious it was a different <laughs> night yeah <laughs> and every time I went there at some point in the night they would play work Mm. And then I would be like, my night is complete. <laughs> <laughs> would you? So let's imagine like he went there and they didn't play work. Would you ask for a refund? <laughs> Maybe you. I feel vexed. So. <laughs> the reason I asked that question yeah. about your personal journey regarding your sexuality is that in Lives of Great Men, you said, and I quote, you were that I was not comfortable in my own skin until the late n 90s and yeah. early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's very true. I mean, I left... Um, so there were several... It, it, it takes a while for you, even when you can intellectualize the fact that you don't feel... You know that you're different, but you don't feel like you've done anything wrong. I was in Nigeria when I stopped going to confession for... Um, my sexuality but I was still a late teenager I was maybe 19 20 when I was in the university in the United States and even then I still felt like I wasn't going to confess for being in love mm -hmm. but it took a while for me to get fully comfortable in my skin and some of that was just therapy um, I didn't have any money as a student but I did have um, student health insurance. So while I didn't have a lot of physical ailments, I had a lot of deep thoughts um, that were, you know, if I don't sugarcoat it, that were dark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. As a college student, I was dark. I was feeling a little bit like, okay, maybe I wasn't wrong in love, but everything in my life was just pointing me in this direction of everything would be so much better if you got over yourself and behaved like your brothers and were heterosexual and walked in that path and just things would open up for you, your life would be different. And it took, um, it took several therapy sessions to get over that with a university um, therapist who dealt with um, student issues and who I could afford because I was still, I didn't have to pay them. I mean, I think that therapy is so underrated, but if you don't have money and you can't afford it, it's the first thing that you decide, I'm not doing that, you know. 
But while I was a student, I could afford, and it took maybe a year plus of going to therapy to really get very, very comfortable in who I was, in believing that I was not just a child of God, but I was perfect in the way that I was, and that the things that I was thinking about were so sinful and so horrible were just not... You know, so that did take some time to happen. Yeah, but once I got there, I've been okay with it since. But it did take some time. You know, and then I was also um, in that time I discovered a book by a, an American writer. Her name is Marianne Williamson, and she wrote this book that was very, very. Um, it was. Um, I'd like to say seminal, but it felt a lot more than that in my development. It's called A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, who, ironically, she's running for U.S. president right now. Yeah, so I, uh, very often I like to say that, okay, you know, I don't talk a lot about the therapy because it really did help me. But what I will say, um, what lifted me out of um, my funk which you can call it anything. You can call it depression. You can call it, you know, just this haze of feeling inadequate or sad or whatever, you know, that was holding me back. Um, were the things that I learned in that book, you know, A Return to Love. And part of that, like, Marianne Williamson makes the case for your own personal responsibility, you know, that you... It made me look at myself and say, why am I just submitting to everybody else, you know? If you have a bad relationship and something terrible happens in your relationship and you're quick to blame the other person, it was like, well, you gave the guy your phone number. You allowed yourself to be walked all over. You wake up feeling that you're so inadequate. Well, tap into some joy in you. And so one of the things that I have done over the last few years is like, sometimes I'll use a hashtag that says, book saved my life. But it all started with this particular book, which allowed me to look deep in myself, open up my own potential. And when I could no longer afford therapy, I could read books. I could always find the answer to any problem that I was looking for between the pages. And so um, Marianne Williamson's work for me was the beginning of embracing Frankie embracing that you are you're special you're wonderful it doesn't you don't have to have any money you know to be fantastic and to be great and to love yourself and once i was able to embrace all of that and get out of my depressive period i was now able to attract all kinds of light mainly positive but there's still there's still missteps but i was able to deal with my failures a little bit better by looking at the lessons I learned from A Return to Love, I had to find my own way to love myself. And for me, that book was the beginning of my love affair with finding solutions to problems through reading, through books. You know, now Marianne Williamson, you know, today she's many things and she's, you know, you could agree with her, you could not agree with her, you could think that sometimes she comes off as being kind of cuckoo or whatever. And I've heard all of that, and I see her run for presidency, and, you know, she says things that are interesting, but I will say the book is not the person, and the book for me was spectacular. Till tomorrow, I will always say that that is a book that, you know, saved my life. There is a quote I've heard numerous <laughs> times, and I didn't realize that it came from this book. <laughs> and if you don't mind, I'm going to read it out. Please. So it's a quote um, I should have used in Lives of Great Men. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. miracles. Yeah. And the quote is, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light not our darkness that most frightens us. And then the next bit that stuck out to me is, your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure about you. We are all meant to shine. 
as children do. And in time to the point that you're making, there is one line that says, we were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within, within us. It's not just for some of us, it's in everyone. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you walked into a room, a meeting, or you're trying to get something done and you now feel the need to dim your light mm. because you don't want people to be uncomfortable so that you can get this contract or you can get this meeting or you can get this done for somebody else to shine uh, just so that you can be accepted. And I've been like that for many years, but I'm not like that anymore. And that in my early 20s was the beginning of my saying, take me as I am or leave me alone because I wasn't going to change for anyone. That was the beginning of me truly believing that I was created by God just the way that I am. And I can make mistakes, but one of the things I will not do is to go and change myself, you know. So, you know, I am, um, today, all of these years later, I still don't believe in um, changing myself i like to put who i am out there and you have the choice you can take it or you can leave it and that's okay <laughs> you know that's okay i don't you know and i don't make you know i used to be very judgmental of some of my peers and my friends because of the way they behaved in public or how people would see them but i know that i've had a different path I've never had to be in a situation like I describe in Lives of Great Men of people who have to get married, otherwise they won't get a promotion. That has not happened to me. I've been able to get promoted, denied promotion. I've been able to advance, denied uh, advancement. But it hasn't been because of my sexuality. And it hasn't been a thing that I felt compelled to hide. So if I have to go to an office function or office cocktail party, I would take whoever I'm dating. If I have to go to a friend's wedding, family wedding, big function, I would take whoever I'm dating. I've never felt the need to um, paint a picture to make others feel comfortable. And part of that is because of the time that I was in therapy and I was really depressed and a return to love came into my life where I was now saying that, okay, you have to take me for me, but you don't have to take me, but I'm not going to live for you. And so that's sort of like where I am and I wanted to show that journey in lives of great men because my journey is different from everybody else's journey but I wanted to show that we are all in this together mm. and some of us have found different ways to cope and some of us have had to conform but even in conformity people are still trying to live their best lives and that is all I hope for all of us. Mm. Mm -hmm. You've had an illustrious career. Well, I had a career. As a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Illustrious, I don't know. I'm still broke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still flying economy. <laughs> mm, I don't believe you. Mr. Lambda Award winning author. I'm I don't believe you. <laughs> working I think I think it. you say that to keep people like me from like, please sir, can I have some coins? I have no uh, coins to give. <laughs> You have had an illustrious <laughs> career well, as I've a done journalist. Things, yes. yes, to me, I've you done have. Things. I've done things. And that's also, true. you yeah. have been, you have witnessed and been on the cusp of important points in, in our history. In yeah. our history, not just well, ours is a big phrase, but yeah. American history, yeah. African history. You have traveled across many countries, mm. and I'm curious to know. You've talked about the importance of um, Return to Love by Marianne Williamson on you. Yeah. I'm curious to know the book that inspired you to become a journalist, given your It was experience. not a book. It was, it was, um, it was a life. It was mm. a life of uh, a Nigerian journalist who, with his friends, started something called Newswatch back in the day. And um, I did not know him personally, but he was a friend of my big sister, my elder sister, Annette. And I have photos of them together. Mm. Um, the man's name was Delegua. He, with yes. four friends of his, started a publication called Newswatch, mm -hmm. where they um, they really sort of like held the government of its day. Uh, they were all about truth to power. But I also remember very clearly um, when he received the Passel bomb and was killed, and what followed. 
while they were working, I learned how to read because my father used to bring newspapers home. I learned my ABCs before I went to kindergarten because daddy would bring newspapers home and I would read them. <laughs> you know, it was an activity. Mm. And I didn't always know what things meant, but I sort of got the ABCs thing down. And my love of newspapers began because daddy brought home, you know, five to six newspapers every day from work. So when I was in the boarding house, I was part of the press club because I wanted to be like Delegiwa and Ray Ekbu and write columns and all the things that they were doing. And of course, in 1986, when he was killed by a passel bomb, a murder that in 2019 has not been officially solved. Mm. Yeah. This is a murder that many people pointed the finger at the Nigerian government of mm -hmm. the day. Mm -hmm. Until tomorrow, or at least till today, they have not been able to prosecute one person mm. for planting a bomb and killing a prominent journalist. Um, it shook me, but it also made me realize how we could change lives through words. How old were you then? I was 16. I was a bright 16-year-old, <laughs> I would venture to say. Maybe not bright academically, <laughs> but I certainly knew what was happening around me. Mm. You know, I, I ask because I'm thinking that a prominent figure has been assassinated, in effect, by the state. Yes. Um, and then and we, have no, we have no one who has been held accountable. I mean, I think that people just think that because it happened so long ago that everybody has forgotten. I can yeah. assure you that his family hasn't forgotten that no one has been responsible for their yeah. father's death. Yeah. And the people they believe are responsible for his death are just walking around today. So the reason that I was, my thought process is a young person seeing this horrific, hearing about this horrific incident mm -hmm. happen to someone who's close to you mm -hmm. and close to your family. Fear to me would be the natural reaction. My question is, what about it sparked your your conviction to decide to be a journalist? It wasn't, I don't know that I, I went into journalism thinking that, oh, I could get killed like Deligua, you know. But I there were things that about him that were interesting to me. He had gone to America to go to school. He had worked in New York papers. I think he worked at the New York Times for a little bit, and he worked at other places. He had returned to Nigeria. He had worked in the industry, and then with his three friends started a publication that was uh, a, a weekly news magazine that was very well done, and we haven't seen anything on that level since. And um, then he was killed. So instead, I so for me, th I have never really had any other career. Mm -hmm. I was in the press club in school. I went to University of Port Harcourt and I studied theater, and I acted um, a little bit. Um, I acted on stage and I did a couple of television things before. And I went to Nigeria to continue my journalism, but there was never um, any other career option for me. I was always going to be a storyteller in one form or the other. If I wasn't going to do it in journalism, then I'd have to learn how to be a playwright mm. in the veins of people like Ola Rutimi, mm -hmm. Wale Shoinka, yes. in that vein, because these people wrote plays about their society. Mm -hmm. They told stories mm. for the stage. So if I wasn't going to do that, I knew that, you know, I probably wouldn't make it as an actor because I'm not that good with <laughs> accents, but I could make it as a writer and a storyteller. Mm. If I wasn't meant to do that, then it had to be journalism, and in particular, print journalism, because I've always lived and worked through words. Um, so there was not, to go back to your original question, there was not a particular book where I read this book and I was like, oh man, this is really great. It was Dele Gila's lives, and then just as I went on, seeing what you could do with journalism, how you could shine a light on things that people ignore, having an editor's eye, seeing things that people don't want to see, and holding the mirror up to yourself, and then you could affect change. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode. A link to the songs featured in this episode is available in the show notes. Get in touch by emailing booksandrhymes at gmail.com. Follow Books and Rhymes on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to share your thoughts on this episode by using the hashtag booksandrhymes. Subscribe to the mailing list at booksandrhymes.com. Have a most, most, most excellent and fantastic week. Until next time, take care. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.